0: In June of 2020, our class had its first session Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show We're reading books, we're killing trees Our housemates and our spouses are saying stop it please We're reading books, we're killing cedars At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers this is our teacher and she's very optimistic That she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arse. We're reading books, we're killing trees Our housemates and our spouses are saying Stop it, stop it! Please, promise. we're reading books, we're killing cedars And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers Housemates and our spouses are saying stop it, please. We're reading books, we're killing cedars, and Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for Wayward readers. Readers And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for Wayward readers.
1: This is the Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers podcast. We have a rather unique title, so I have to assume if you're listening that you're here on purpose and you already know that on this podcast, four readers are working our way through Wuthering Heights, guided by an expert on the subject. This is episode two, Double Framed. At the head of the classroom, this episode is Dr. Emmy Doe, a recent PhD grad who was last week's teacher's pet. I hope you don't mind me calling you doctor. Is that okay? (laughs) Now that I know you actually got your PhD. Uh, (laughs) She's the one the rest of us have to outdo this week. Not a trivial challenge, to be sure. Uh, Judy Ito, theater creator, is sitting in the next chair over, a shiny apple on her desk that she plans to give to our teacher. Judy will be giving our reader response this episode, so if she hasn't prepared well, that apple might be her only hope. At the back of the class, finally removing the purple dunce cap he's been wearing since the last episode, is puppeteer and podcaster Daniel Wishes. You can check out his podcast, Weird Movie Club, wherever fine podcasts are found. Delectable. Delectable. And getting hit by Daniel's spitballs and paper airplanes is me, artistic director of the Oklahoma Theatre Group, your host and solid B-minus student so far, Andrew Woolner, That's my name. Uh, and standing at the lectern, and if you call it a podium, she'll hit you with a piece of chalk, is our teacher and PhD student of Victorian literature, Miss Charlotte Sampson. Tough but fair, she is here to guide us through our reading of Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Okay, welcome everyone. Are we ready to get started? Let's do this. Let's go from let's go from awkwardly scripted to
2: completely off the cuff. Alright, class. So, as you know, you read chapters four through six. I assume you've read chapters four through six. In these three chapters, we're going to get the start of Nellie Dean's narrative. Nellie Dean is a Domestic servant, currently at Thrushcross Grange, and we learn that she actually was working at Wuthering Heights from a very young age. It seems uh, she was brought on, was more or less raised with the rest of the kids, though obviously to do domestic service over at Wuthering Heights. We learn about where Heathcliff comes from, or at least we get the the hint of his parentage. Um, the elder Mr. Earnshaw finds him, uh, starving on the streets of Liverpool, brings him home, because apparently you could just bring a boy back home then. Um, it was not quite as simple as that. We get a little vignette of sort of the... The childhood goings-on, the bit of the family dynamic at Wuthering Heights. Um, in these chapters for a change, the biggest dickhead is not Lockwood. It's not Heathcliff yet. Um, it's actually Hindley Earnshaw, I think, who is who sort of takes the dickhead crown for these chapters. We get to see sort of his abusive treatment of the rest of his family, starting when he's a kid. And then, of course, after the elder Mr. Earnshaw's death, Hindley is just this looming domestic tyrant over Wuthering Heights. And as we, we, as we will see in our discussion, it's going to have some pretty, pretty drastic effects on Heathcliff and Kathy. Um, they, we are told, spend sort of a wild childhood, very poorly educated and neglected, mistreated by Hindley and his new wife. And we're going to see in chapter six, the two of them going to Thrushcross Grange for the first time and meeting the Linton family that lives there. So why don't we jump into Jury's reader response?
0: Yay. As,
1: As a reminder to anyone who's just joining us, the reader response is assigned at the end of the previous show. And that reader has to essentially give a presentation, which is in a form uh, dictated by the person who won uh, teacher's pet in that in the in that previous episode. So, uh, Judy, remind us what Emmy assigned you as as the form of your reader response.
3: Um, Emmy assigned me uh, how do you pronounce it, Di- diorama. Oh, is that yeah, right? Yeah, 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 okay. Yeah. I actually didn't know what it was, so I had to search. I hope <laughs> I did it right.
4: Wow, I can see it. Looks great.
3: <laughs> this yeah. is the only thing. So I actually, I, I couldn't find my um, color pencils and my watercolor painting stuff. So I have this done in an hour. So this is the only two pieces that I have. But this is Wuthering Heights.
2: Oh. Can you describe Wuthering Heights for the listeners? It's very adorable, but they obviously cannot see it. Yes. Oh, right!
3: Um, <laughs> Weathering Heights. I put in um, two pencil-colored um, trees. A uh, Weathering Heights is more of a gloomy, dark vibe, um, and has two windows.
1: <laughs> it does it has two windows you know what it reminds me of i don't know if you had these in japan but like in canada we had one of the fireworks we had every year for canada day was called the burning schoolhouse daniel do you ever
4: yeah i remember the burning, yeah, school the burning house. schoolhouse
1: yeah. this looks like it's the burning schoolhouse minus the minus the chimney and with like the addition of two white trees on the side
3: this it's yeah. just a okay it's just like a staple house
4: also i guess the windows are on the roof <laughs>
3: The second floor yeah
1: that is yes. this is this are the more skylights than, than windows aren't they
3: <laughs> um yeah just to show the artistic side of it that is actually a fork oh
1: there's a fork, <laughs> oh, oh, there's
3: a
2: fork
4: sticking sticking up that's holding the,
3: the peak yeah. of the roof
4: in place um, and what what does the fork symbolize
3: um i thought it had more like a dark kind of weathering had some more like a dark kind of vibe i kind of um started making it around chapter like before i read the chapter a little bit so it was before i got into like catherine and like the childhood part of the story um so like chapter one through three was obviously more darker so i i drew i used a fork and then i colored the point the pointy parts of the fork
1: the tines the tines of the fork
3: you call those tines yeah Tines mm-hmm. of the fork, and then this is um, Thrushcross Grange, and it, I <laughs> I think it's a, adorable. <laughs> it's a more fancy um, house with the, the, the with the Linton family, and you can see um, the kids. They seem uh, to have a
1: glass sliding patio door there. This, yeah, that looks like one of those big
3: glass sliding
1: patio <laughs> doors. <laughs> it's
3: um, very modern. Yeah, and then I tried to make very it modern. fancy, and then them fighting over the puppy.
1: Oh, the two the two Linton kids fighting over the puppy.
3: Yeah, so
5: they they have mad faces. It also has an orange trim. That one, or is that this? like an
3: awning? Yes.
1: Yeah. What is that orange thing, like below the roof? I just wanted to make it thing? fancy.
3: <laughs> <gasps> oh, this. Oh, okay. Okay. This is curtains. I didn't have colored pencils, so it was hard. I like cut them. The sticky notes. I cut sticky notes.
1: So The readers can't see the houses that that Judy's presented are like stark white. And with a little, some some black lines drawn on them for like the windows and doors and stuff like that. And then the people, I was wondering the two children are like this pale blue and the dog is a pink and it is the pale blue and pink of post it notes. Yep. That makes so much sense. And then the orange post it. Okay. I understand the color scheme now.
3: You got to do your best with what you have, right? So,
2: uh, uh, are you ready for your grade? Yes. (laughs) So, I actually think that you have. With some fairly simple materials, uh, captured... Sorry, Mr. Darcy is being very, very solicitous of my attention just now.
4: I think he's excited about the dog and the diorama.
2: Oh, your friend? I don't think he understands screens or dioramas all that well.
1: Um, I don't think you're giving him enough credit.
2: He is a very (laughs) smart boy.
1: Um, for yes. any 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 listeners joining us on this episode, I don't know why you'd join us like in the middle of reading a book. But anyway, just so you know, uh, Charlotte has a dog
2: named Mr. Darcy. He's a standard poodle and he's perfect. Anyway, so your grade for the Diorama Project, I feel that you did really capture just visually using a sort of very simple visual language the feel of both Wuthering Heights and Thrush Cross Grange.
3: Yay. Okay.
2: I don't know if you can hear in the background, Mr. Darcy is groaning in protest. I will have <laughs> to put him outside after I finish this grading session. So yeah, our first sort of glimpse of Thrushcross Grange does give it sort of a homey feel to it. But we also see evidence of a little bit of strife and we can sort of say for the the discussion portion um, what we feel about the domestic situation at Thrushcross Grange, but certainly in terms of the visual language, uh, the imagery, we get the sense that there is a stark contrast between these two places. And I think that your dioramas, um, especially with the greater detail concerning the the sort of levels of comfort at Thrushcross Grange compared to Wuthering Heights. Um, It's a really good contrast. Now, you did give the game away a little bit in that this is a reader response, and you can't do the reader response until you've done the current classes assigned reading. And you did this before you read chapters four through six. So I'm going to have to dock you some points for that. But I do... I do think that you put you slapped together a diorama and it looks better than anything I could do so I'm going to give you a B for it.
3: Yay, I'll take that. I'll take a B. <laughs> All
1: right, we're going into the uh, we're going into the discussion question section now.
2: All right. What is your impression of the two houses in these chapters, the way that Nellie Dean describes them? How would you describe the domestic situation? at each of these estates? Like, what's the family dynamic that you glean from the narrative?
5: In, like, chapter three or in chapter... Or chapter four Four or chapter six? six. But chapter four, it's a little bit more of a traditional family that kind of morphs into a completely different dynamic by chapter six for Wuthering Heights,
1: I feel like. Is it is it that different a dynamic? I mean, like, dynamic mm-hmm. maybe, but like the mood is kind of the same. There's always this tension, right? Like the husband and the wife disagree about bringing in like the other child and also seem to they just don't they don't seem to they don't seem to have liked each other very much anyway. Like they right. seem to be already in conflict when everything starts and the kids are already kind of terrible. <laughs> That's right. True. They're they're not like the kids already are kind of. Yeah, are kind of awful. So throwing
5: tantrums when their dad doesn't bring them back a gift
1: brings yeah. them
3: back
5: a brother instead. <laughs> Gross.
1: We, he did. He did bring them back gifts. And they were just all smashed. <laughs> <up. That's right. laughs> I'm. I'm wondering there's part of this like finding Heathcliff story that we don't know and involves like it involves like a drunken poker game and a fist fight. Yeah. <laughs> I think Mister Earnshaw is a little more like he's like. I'm only gonna walk. I'm only gonna go to walk to Liverpool one time in my life. I'm gonna make it worthwhile. <laughs> my mile. Yeah, it takes three goddamn days to walk there.
5: <laughs> All right. Yeah, and then versus what's happening with the Lintons, which feel a little bit more. Um, at least they seem like they're on the same side.
1: Yeah, although, I mean, they're still... They, we, we, the first time we see the the kids, they're fighting. It's kind of like the Linton... The thru- like, looking into the Lintons' house kind of felt to me like Scrooge looking into the Marlies, except if the Marlies all had sticks and were trying to hit each other with them. Like, <laughs> that's, like, that's what...
5: You know, but, like, in a wholesome kind of way. No? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they seem cute. Not, like... Oh my gosh! Terrors.
1: Yeah, they do. They do try to. They do. They do. Try, they do set the dog on a couple of children. though. Fair
5: enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's, that's just the 19th century. That's just upper middle class
2: people in the 19th century, Release at least the hounds. So as long as we're sort of in hound territory, um, what do we make of the difference between the way dogs are treated? and the way uh, at at Wuthering Heights, and the way we see dogs treated at Thrushcross Grange. Yes, Daniel.
4: Well, the children, at least, at Thrushcross Grange are treating the dog (laughs) as a pet, while that is not the case at Wuthering Heights.
2: So what implications does that have?
4: Everything at Wuthering Heights seems very utilitarian, while Thrushcross Grange is plush, and it seems like it's all nice and fancy.
2: And the dogs fit into that how?
4: Because they're treating the dog like a luxury item as opposed to a working class animal.
1: Also, they, the, the, I mean, if the text is to be believed that their dog is a bulldog, which is a purebred and we're never told, I don't think we're ever told. I think the it sounds like the, the one, I do know anyway, but that's going to the future sound like a mutt of some kind, unless I missed something.
4: Wasn't there a purebred uh, bitch piercer pointer? Bitch pointer, purebred
2: bitch pointer. Was that pure oh, purebred? No, that is correct. Daniel, I'm going to give you two bonus points for that. Sort of. Nice. Before. Oh, he's the first person to score tonight. He's the yeah. first person on the board. Okay, so mm, I guess for another quick impromptu pop quiz um, review from last week, we can call it. Uh, what color is the bitch pointer? Oh, it's a very distinct description of the color who can get it who can get there first
4: i wanted to make a joke answer but i also don't want to be docked any more points for it so i'm just <laughs> gonna No,
2: make the joke answer i mean it looks like you are scanning frantically through I, the text
5: i am scanning i am scanning it's like uh, uh, the villain juno i can't beautiful animal
4: it's before they mention her name oh isn't there a time limit on this question? Okay, the, uh, the,
2: the pop quiz is dragging on a little bit. Yeah. In an arch find. under the dresser reposed a huge liver-colored bitch pointer. Surrounded mm. by a swarm of squealing puppies and other dogs haunted other recesses. <sighs> Liver color
4: <sighs> is on the tip of my tongue.
2: Liver colored! That's well, why not put it to the class? That's a weird color to describe a, a a dog by. What do we make of that? And
1: Lockwood, not a dog lover, more of a more of a cat
4: person. I would say the dog has the mange. It's losing some fur.
2: Yeah, that was plausible. I mean, we know that dogs are not particularly well treated at Wuthering Heights. They're not pampered and petted.
5: Liver color is like a purpley color is it not
2: yeah it's kind of a purpley mottled brown it definitely evokes a sort of sickliness i think it's certainly a very deliberately chosen color to describe this dog and i think the fact that it is this sort of weird organ colored dog it draws attention to its sort of physicality and its kind of grossness at least as lockwood interprets it as with everything else at Wuthering Heights, it is stark and not pretty. Anyway, let's move on to another discussion question. There's a good description, I think, in Chapter 5 um, of Nellie Dean describing Catherine Earnshaw, just describing her sort of behavior and demeanor. So we're looking at actually the fourth paragraph down um, mm-hmm. in Chapter 5. And do I have any volunteers from the class to read the paragraph so that the listeners at home can sort of tell which passage we're discussing?
5: It's the one that starts, certainly she had ways.
2: Certainly she had ways. Yes.
5: Go ahead. Certainly she had ways with her, such as I never saw a child take up before. And she put all of us past our patients 50 times and oftener in a day. From the hour she came downstairs till the hour she went to bed We had not a minute's security that she wouldn't be in mischief. Her spirits were always at high-water mark, her tongue always going, singing, laughing, and plaguing everyone, everybody who would not do the same. A wild, wicked slip she was. But she had the bonniest eye, the sweetest smile, and the lightest foot in the parish. And after all, I believe she meant no harm. For when once she made you cry in good earnest, it seldom happened that she would not keep you company and obliged you to be quiet that you might comfort her. She was much too fond of Heathla. The greatest punishment we could invent for her was to keep her separate from him, yet she got chided more than any of us on his account. In play, she liked exceedingly to act act the little mistress, using her hands freely and commanding her companions. She did so to me, but I would not bear slapping in our ordering, and so I let her know.
2: Okay. So gut check. What's the impression that you get of Catherine? And to add a little wrinkle to it, bearing in mind that this is Nellie Dean's narrative description, does that color the description of Kathy uh, of Catherine Earnshaw in your head at all?
4: I didn't really understand the question. Does it color our? Sorry, one more time.
2: Okay, so we have this description of Catherine Earnshaw. But bear in mind that this is Nellie Dean describing Catherine Earnshaw. So your gut check of Catherine Earnshaw's description, uh, first of all, just what is it based on that description, and sort of as a follow-up, does knowing that this is Nellie Dean's opinion alter your sort of your con your conception of Catherine Earnshaw's character?
5: As if this is another fellow child. That is observing her behavior.
2: Yeah, so this is in a roundabout way. We're getting to um, narrative reliability. Like, mm-hmm. what do we, what do we make of? And I'm sort of using this as an example uh, to, to sort of figure out what we make of Nellie Dean as a narrator, as well mm-hmm. as a character in her own right. But and how? Sorry, this is also this is all very confusing. Frame narratives do that. How? Nellie Dean's description of Catherine Earnshaw makes you feel about Catherine. Mm. Well,
4: -hmm. Catherine just sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. I think she's just kind of a normal kid who's happy. And Nellie isn't really a normal kid because she's part of the help. And she has to kind of take care of the other kids, even though she herself is a kid. And it's kind of a strict environment with, you know, Joseph... uh, Bible-thumping, and uh, I guess Kathy must come across as very rebellious, especially when Nellie has no chance to rebel herself like other kids could do.
2: That's a very good observation. I like I like that you brought up the sort of strictness uh, of the household, but I do think that Nellie especially has a much more personal investment in maintaining that discipline. Because of course, that's kind of her job. Like, she was brought on to, to sort of be part of the household and can't really go against its wishes. The household sort of standing in for whoever runs it at any given time, whether that's the elder Mr. Earnshaw or whether it's, whether it's Hindley once he takes everything over. I think that just to sort of give my, my take on it i think that she's being very deliberately described here as high in spirit um to mark how very different and how very at odds she is with the overall tenor at withering heights mm. like we get we get the sense from this description that catherine is just an in personality something of a of an outcast I mean, Heathcliff is sort of the scapegoat at Wuthering Heights. He's the one that people are much more free to blame for for, for bad stuff. But Catherine is the one who I think in temperament, just she seems almost otherworldly, seems not to belong, certainly not at Wuthering Heights. But you get the sense that she would be a standout no matter where she is, that this high spirit... Uh, her spirits were always at the at high water, Mark, is the way Nellie describes her. It marks her out as a particular kind of character, um, one that I think makes her very, very suited in terms of her destiny as the sort of gothic ghost figure that's sort of haunting Wuthering Heights. I think here we see her capacity to to have a haunting personality, if that makes any sense. She's someone that you wouldn't forget, having met her.
5: Mm. So her legacy would live on.
1: Maybe to grab your hand through a window.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So let's move on to one more discussion question. There is a teeny tiny line in Chapter 6. And this is the very last sentence of the second paragraph. Can I get a quick volunteer to read that sentence?
3: I did remark to be sure that mounting the stairs made her breathe very quick, that the least sudden noise set her all in a quiver, and that she coughed troublesomely sometimes. But I knew nothing of what these symptoms portended, and had no impulse to sympathize with her. We don't in general take to foreigners here, Mr. Lockwood, unless they take... Unless they take to us first.
2: What do you make... Okay, so the context here is this is Nellie Dean describing uh, Hindley Earnshaw's new wife. What do we make of that last sentence? We don't, in general, take to foreigners here.
4: You know, they're shy. They, uh, they they, don't go out of their way to make friends with foreigners. They wait for foreigners to make friends with them. Can we talk about the first part of that, that read where it's like that girl's definitely gonna die right (laughs) the wife she's she's
1: sick um yeah i wrote francis clearly has tb she's clearly got tuberculosis that description is consumption like she's coughing she's like thin she's pale that's like classic classic night classic 18th century poet right there this is just nelly dean i mean she she remarks on this because she knows now that these symptoms, because she says, I didn't know what it would pretend, which means mm. she does know now. So she knows what's going to, clearly something's going to happen to Frances. It's going to be related to these symptoms. And the foreigner's line, um, to me, just sounds like an excuse why she didn't, like, she had no sympathy for her at the time. She just found it troublesome that this woman would, like, lose her breath while she was walking up the stairs.
2: Okay.
1: Um, so it's, it's Nellie Dean sort of excusing her own bad behavior with a sort of hand wave. Yeah. I, think. I think
4: it might be safe to assume... Um, that any character who's not in Mr. Lockwood's
2: time is probably going to die. <laughs> okay, I am going to give, Andrew, I'm going to give you a bonus point. Because Yay. it's a good observation that it is it is sort of her way to excuse herself for not being quite so warm to her. But, remember that she's telling this to Mr. Lockwood, who has made a gigantic ass of himself at every given opportunity. (laughs) So when she's like, we don't in general take to foreigners here, Mr. Lockwood, unless they take to us first. She's given a sick burn on Lockwood right there. Like, if you want us to like you, you got to take to us first. You got to learn how to speak our language and learn how we do things here in the West Riding. Mm. Like, really
1: that's that's not how i wouldn't i would have said that the end part of that sentence unless they take to us first is it's almost like it's almost like me saying to judy oh japanese people drive me crazy well you know except for you right you know begging your pardon but blah 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 you're the exception that's that's what it's that's what it feels like to me because she's she's sitting there with her sewing she's she's consented to sit there with her sewing and tell them tell him this story um obviously she doesn't think he's as great an ass as everybody else does or if she does, she doesn't care because she just wants an ear. She wants an ear in the room. Um, I think she's
4: probably flirting too. Like this is oh, probably yeah, the best date she's had for quite a long time. <laughs> we don't generally take to hair, here, Mister
1: Lockwood, unless they take off their shirt <laughs> to us first. Perhaps you could draw a little circle around your nipple.
2: Okay, so you're you're shipping. Nellie Dean and Lockwood. Oh, that, that's Daniels. I'm just, I'm just playing. Along. <laughs> I said, I, I said we were gonna, we were gonna move on, but I have to, I have to bring this up. We can't not talk about it. What do we make of the various ways Heathcliff is described in terms of his race and ethnicity? We we can't dodge the question. What do you make of it? I learned a
1: new vocabulary word: lascar. <laughs> which is a, uh, so the the line is, they refer, like the, uh, this is Mr. Linton, I think, refers to Heathcliff as some kind of Lascar or an American or Spanish castaway. So Lascar is generally like an Indian sailor. So another reference to Heathcliff not being white. Um, but the te- te- technically, uh, and then the Gypsy reference as well, they're connected because the Roma are thought to have come from nor- the northern Indian subcontinent. So I don't know if this was known at the time because I think this was, this might have been more recent genetic research, but like those two, like Alaskar, like, would be very connected to the idea of them calling him a gypsy. Um, And certainly in terms of appearance, even if you don't know of any of those geographical or genealogical connections.
2: Yeah. So, thank you, Andrew. I'm actually giving you five points for that, but only because one of my pop quiz questions was who knows what Alaskar is? (laughs) Um, But there's some additional historical context there. The Britons were a Pretty racist, imp- big empire. They didn't make dis- distinctions between a lot of foreigners. Anyone from sort of, you know, over there generally, um, in, in, in the Orient who was a sailor would have been a Lascar. Um, hmm. and Lascar's sort of as a class were horribly mistreated. They lived in conditions of, if not outright slavery, then very near slavery, um, for a very long period of time. Like, Lascars were operating, Lascars were sailing British ships all the way up in, in the 19th century, even into the early 20th. And as a class were mistreated, underpaid. Um, I mean, working on a ship is a very demanding and unpleasant experience as is and they were paid fucking peanuts i mean i don't know if they were literally paid peanuts but it would not surprise me if anyone's interested i can get the specifics on that but basically it was sort of an underclass of foreigners well foreigners to britain um that were just sort of scooped up from their homeland um under the flimsiest of pretenses sometimes, and set to work in this grueling, dangerous environment. They very seldom left their ships when they made port, um, and when they did, they were quite visibly marked out as foreign. So it's actually not unreasonable to to suspect that Heathcliff might be of that origin. I mean, he's found on the streets of Liverpool— a famously cosmopolitan port at the time so having a, a an orphaned lascar child lying around starving in a gutter in liverpool it's not out of the question but boy this is a very very loaded topic considering how heathcliff's character is going to develop and we are sadly going to see some hints that his parentage has more than a little to do with his foul temperament which it's it it's it's a bad look emily it's uh it's problematic emily but um not not necessarily out of keeping with Attitudes towards foreigners, especially foreigners, very clearly marked out um, as being of a, a, a different race, as being non-white. Hmm. Free-form discussion. If anyone has any more observations, or even just questions for me, I can not guarantee that I'll have a great answer off the cuff, but you know, I go have, for it.
1: I have a sentence that I could not make head or, heads or tails with. This is it. It's from chapter 5. I mm-hmm. um, can't remember what paragraph. Um, pretty early on. I fancied the discontent of age and disease arose from his family disagreements. I think that's referring to Mr. Earnshaw. Semicolon. As he would have it that it did, colon, really, you know, sir, it was in his sinking frame. My note is, what the fuck? I really, like, what is he would have it that it did, it being. The family disagreements, the disease, the discontent of age. Like, I, I can't parse that sentence at all. Like, all the words make sense, but... Oh, okay. So, <clears throat> She's talking about how, because this is this chapter where we... The, where Mr. Earnshaw starts, like, he's on his decline. And he sent, he sent Hindley off to college.
2: Okay, let's, yeah, let's parse that. Because it is a bit tricky. And I think that the... I think the mode of expression here is tripping us up a little bit. It's it's not a phrase that we would use. So I think the first part is fairly straightforward. I Mm. fancy, that's Nellie Dean, the discontent of age and disease arose from his family disagreements. So that's Nellie Dean saying that the reason that he's in such a decline in his old age is that his family life is just full of various bits of strife. And so I think that middle clause, as he would have it, that it did, as he would imply is his opinion, is the way that I would read it. As he would have it, that it did. Um, Sort of, if he were alive today, he would probably agree that... He is uncommonly, you know, down in the dumps in his old age and infirmity because nobody gives him a fucking moment's peace. Like, that's Nellie Dean saying, yeah, and he would be on board with that assessment 100%. You know, sir, it was in his sinking frame that you could almost see in his body, you know, when, when Heathcliff and Catherine were acting a fool. You could see him get visibly, he could see him visibly age every time they were they were naughty. Like, it's, that's the implication that I got from it. Does everyone agree with that sort of interpretation? Does it make sense? That makes more sense now.
5: I'm so impressed, Andrew. When I hit sentences like that, I just go, and I just move on. <laughs> yeah, me too. I
1: normally Maybe do. Maybe because there's so many... I, no, I normally would. I, I, I'm figuring. I usually assume when I'm reading something, I'll glean the rest from context. But because we're going through this like as a process, I, I want to know. Right. If I hit something that's really like, usually I just read it twice, and I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. This one was just like, I didn't, I didn't think anyone other than me wrote sentences with a colon and a semicolon in them. So. <laughs> but apparently,
3: um, Emily yeah, Brontë
1: does. Emily Brontë does. Um. I, just another observation while we're on that ch- chapter is this Mr. Mr. Earnshaw uses like the second person singular pronouns. A couple, like when the, I think we don't hear him talk very much, but one time at least when he talks, and I think he's talking to, I think he was talking to Kathy. He's, but it's, I'm not sure why, why that is. Like, so Charlotte, my question is, is that to show that he's old fashioned because that second person singular is dropping out of fashion. Is it to show, cause I know in Yorkshire, even to this day, they still they still use second person singular in their, in their dialect, but he's not doing a dialect. So is it, so is it to mark him as Northern English or like, and just to show he's more refined than Joseph? Like he's, he has an accent, but it's more refined than Joseph's or is it? Yeah. It's just show that he's old fashioned because nobody, nobody else has used that in that family.
2: No, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, it's to show, I, th- I, th- I think, as long- so long as we're on this topic, it's a way of marking him out in terms of region, but not so much in terms of class. Um, okay. the second person singular. So, you know what? I'm actually going to read. I think it's the sentence that I think I found the one you're talking about. Oh, yeah. And I'll do my best Yorkshire accent. Um, <laughs> Nay, Cathy, the old man would say, I cannot love thee, thou worse than thy brother. Go say thy prayers and ask God's pardon. I doubt thy mother and I must rue that we ever reared thee. It's a way of demonstrating that he still speaks the way broadly somebody in Yorkshire would have spoken, but not nearly as sort of clownish and rural as Joseph. Um but Throwing in the second person singular, the vows and v's was a very clear marker at the time um of somebody from the north of England um sort of broadly across the north of England um, the second person singular persisted um in dialect, so it would have made it would have made sense to her readership for an older man from Yorkshire. To use the second person singular pronouns. Um, especially in, you know, familiar contexts. Like we have this idea that thou and thee is like older biblical fancy ways of saying you. When really it's actually a, a way to represent more casual mode of address. Like, you would call someone thou if they were in your family or, or a close friend. Formally, you would call someone you.
1: Yeah, it's, mm. not, it's not just that. It's also like someone of lower status, you'd say, mm-hmm. thee or thy. And then, then of course, you have the Quakers who were like, they wanted, they, unlike everybody else who was standardizing on you, the polite form of, of address is the only second person. They wanted everyone to thee-thou each other because it was it showed more humility.
2: Yeah, if you're sort of putting everyone on sort of equal social footing. Then, yeah, you're going to want to use the more familiar pronoun, which dialectically in various parts of England, sort of spread out at various parts through points through history, you're going to go with thou. I'm going to give you two more bonus points. Andrew, you're racking up the bonus points this episode. (laughs) Daniel's
4: got some bonus points to get here. So, in Yorkshire specifically, because so much of Yorkshire's industry and culture revolves around sheep, would you, when addressing a sheep, refer to them as you?
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> you just lost the two bonus points that you oh, got. Oh, come on! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm act- Okay, no. That was a good one. <laughs> I personally dislike <laughs> puns, but... You made us laugh, so I'll actually give you, a, a, actually give you a, a bonus point for that. Wow. I can't make you all goof-averse. That, that's, that's comedy poison, and we want some levity in this podcast, <laughs> I think.
4: Miss Charlotte's Bronte Bites, now with extra cheese!
2: Okay, so, fun fact. The Bronte's dad, Patrick Bronte, the position that he held was perpetual curate. At Hayworth. Now, a perpetual curate, C-U-R-A-T-E, or curate is probably a better way to pronounce it, um, it's sort of a glitch in the matrix of Church of England bureaucracy. The idea behind it is, if there was a small chapel that was part of a larger parish but far away enough from the main parish church that it still had its own dedicated congregation, and so it needed a dedicated clergyman, um, you would get a curate to to fill that, that, that position. And if it were a sort of historically long-running chapel that became a, a big enough community in its own right, then you would bring in a perpetual curate, somebody who had a lifetime appointment to that position— um, but because it was not a parish church, they couldn't raise any tithes for their own income. So they, they, all the tithes would go to the parish. So the perpetual curacy position, um, was usually endowed. There would be like a, a fund that would go towards the, the, the upkeep and the, and the curate's salary. So when Patrick Bronte took this position, it was a career dead end, and one of the reasons why the Bronte family sort of scraped by and had a very uneven education is they didn't have a whole lot of money to rub together, because being a perpetual curate doesn't pay a whole lot, and it doesn't really lead to anywhere more lucrative. So that's your fun Bronte bite pop quiz
1: time let me just do a little intro and now it's time for the cathartic pop quiz not cathartic for us the readers who are participating but cathartic for charlotte because she gets to hammer us down if we screw up big time okay something she can't do with presumably with her regular students
2: all right first pop quiz question how long has Nellie Dean worked at Thrushcross Grange?
3: <laughs> I have no idea.
4: Is that, is that answerable? Like, do they actually say how many years have passed?
3: I wouldn't ask the
2: friggin' question if it wasn't right there in the text. That's the point of the pop quiz. Eighteen. That is correct. Eighteen years. All right. Next pop quiz question, and this will be for three points each. It's a two-parter. The gifts that Elder Mr. Earnshaw brings for his kids. What gift does he give to Hindley? Violet! (laughs) Smashed fiddle. Okay. Emmy, you blurted that out. That's negative one point for you. (laughs) Andrew, who politely raised his hand (laughs) and answered correctly. I'm actually going to give you four points because you you said smashed fiddle, which is um, obviously not the intended gift, but that's how it showed up anyway um what's kathy's gift i didn't see whose hand was first let's go with daniel give you a chance
4: it was a whip that he lost while defending uh heathcliff in some kind of battle or something that
1: the story of how heathcliff ended up with mr earnshaw and why mr earnshaw is so attached to him is way more interesting than actually anything else that's happened so far i have got to say i want that novel
4: i want i want that novel I imagined he needed to use the whip to swing across a tub full of snakes or something.
2: Write <laughs> the fanfic. There's a fanfic to be written there. You know the 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 the, the story of Heathcliff's rescue, kidnapping. It's not clear. <laughs> I mean, there's a chance that, there's a chance that Mr. Earnshaw just straight up kidnapped Heathcliff. We don't know. We Again, don't. we're only getting all of this at this point. Like third fourth hand how many hands are in this narrative there's so many hands let's just let's just move on what is catherine's or sorry what are catherine's last words to her dad i'm playing the jeopardy music in my head to give myself sort of a timer
1: Why cannot? Why cannot you always be a good man, Father? Is that it?
2: Sneaking it in under the bell is Andrew for another five points. Yep. So actually, their last words to each other—it's pretty fucking pathetic. Why canst thou not always be a good lass, Kathy? And she turned her face up to his and laughed and answered, "Why cannot you always be a good man, Father?" That's that's going to give you some daddy issues if that's your sort of last interaction. So, yeah, I'm going to give you five points for that.
1: Well, technically, whatever the words in the song she was singing were the last thing she said to him. because She does sing. She does sing to him as he dies.
2: Does she keep singing after that?
1: Yeah. So i I got to um, give
2: myself some negative points for not it's, remembering. It's after
1: after that. So she begins singing. She began singing very low till his fingers dropped from hers and his head sank on his breast. So presumably that's when he went that's when his ticker stopped.
2: Good. I'll give you another point for that. Andrew, you're fucking racking up the on the bonus points this this um, session. Hi-ya. The rest of your, you're you're going to have to step up your game. Um especially God, Emmy. I know. You're sitting at like negative 1
5: point. Oh my gosh.
2: That's I mean, you fucking killed it last time. What <laughs> happened? Sorry. That's stuff that I can't ask my actual students outright well let's follow it up quickly and to give emmy a chance to get on the board here how does Catherine discover that her dad is dead
4: she gives him a hug
2: okay well i was going to be polite and wait for emmy to get on the fucking board (laughs) Um, but apparently uh, we're not going to go in that direction so daniel yes you're correct (laughs) I shall bid father good night first, said Catherine, putting her arms round his neck before we could hinder her. So at this point, sort of the, the rest of the room know he's dead. The poor thing discovered her loss directly. She screamed out, oh, he's dead, Heathcliff, he's dead. And they both set up a heartbreak. Well, I guess Heathcliff didn't know. But yeah, she gives him a hug. You only get one point for that because you totally stepped all over Emmy's chance.
5: Ah, oh, We all have to wear the purple cap at some point
2: yeah it looks like there's no way you can avoid the purple cap. <laughs> um okay, final pop quiz question. What's the dog's name? Thrush Cross Grange? Yeah, Emmy. fun. Skulker Skulker, that is correct. The dog's name is Skulker, which I mean kind of fitting. It's the dog that they that they sick on the kids <laughs> who are kind of creeping around, so you know it takes one to know one, you know Skulker versus skulkers. Anyway, don't look too deeply into it. <laughs> but yeah, Emmy, five points.
5: Yay! I'm not in the negatives!
2: I mean, you're definitely, definitely still wearing the dunce cap. But <laughs> I'll, get, I'll tabulate how, by how much. I Everyone, got two questions
4: right, and I got one point for two questions right, and everybody else gets five points? It's not
2: getting the correct answer that matters. It's how you get there. Yeah, that's a bit arbitrary. I'll give you like three bonus points. How's that sound? You good with that?
4: I'm still in the negative, right? Like, cause I had <laughs> minus 20 from last time.
2: Oh, it's not, it's not an on. Well, let's say that after, after every class is tabulated, you'll get your, you'll get your grade for the semester. But for now, we'll go with your grade for the day. Also, I don't want to keep a running tally of the total. I just want to do it app per app and then add it up, because otherwise it's going to be cumbersome. Anyway, all right. So at the head of the class with a whopping eighteen points is Andrew.
1: New records, second episode, but yeah, it's
2: the new records. And in second place, someone called Guinness, um, on the strength of nothing ventured, nothing gained, is Daniel with seven points. Woo! Woo. didn't get that many points per question but answered a lot of questions often correctly <laughs> Um, in third place we have jury bringing up with five points but also with her B grade that doesn't really have any bearing on the points though Um, and Emmy put on the hat Emmy you got four points and
5: I'm still in the positives
2: you are still in the positives which is good Danny,
4: you got Wait, your hand up? She doesn't get any points for her diorama. What?
5: Yeah, she gets a grade. You get the grade.
2: It's oh, a the different grades. thing okay. altogether. Pay attention, uh, Daniel.
5: Daniel, you're so okay. defensive for dirty. Read the <laughs> syllabus, Daniel.
2: But no, that, that 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 was very kind to look at for your fellow student like that.
4: I just I just can't wrap my head around this system yet, I guess. There's not that much of a system.
2: It's a very arbitrary system designed to confuse everyone involved, me included. (laughs) Succeeded.
1: Uh, So, yeah. So let's get to the assignment of homework. Mm. So, Charlotte, why don't you tell us what chapters we're going to read?
2: So the three-chapter pace is, I think, working for us. And I think that three chapters is going to be a good stopping place for next episode as well. So we're looking at chapters seven through nine.
1: All right. And so then uh, we have to select this. You have to roll the dice or just flip a coin between Daniel and Emmy to see who's going to do the next reader report. And I'm going to then decide yeah. what form that is going to take.
2: Emmy, you have a homework assignment. And Andrew, you get to pick the topic.
1: Let's see. I think, Emmy. Uh, you will be doing your reader report as a freestyle rap.
5: I knew you were going to choose that! <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's literally the best one after the diorama, so...
3: Wait, it has to be a freestyle? Like, she can't write the verses down?
1: She she can write the verses down. Um, okay. She can write the verses down. It has to sound like a freestyle rap. <laughs> yeah, I think... I think I think even Daniel, who came up with this idea, would agree that that's probably a lot to ask from someone who hasn't had, like, you know, a lot of improv training <laughs> or rap training.
4: Because
1: hmm. otherwise you're just going to get, like, my name is Emmy and I'm here to say I read Wuthering Heights <laughs> today.
5: Check,
3: check.
4: <laughs> <laughs> that's how all my freestyle
1: raps go. Yeah, well, you know... Uh, yeah, I guess the only thing left for me to do is say thank you to you guys. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Emmy. Thank you, Judy. Thank you, Miss Charlotte. Uh, and I will see you guys next episode.
2: Yay! Woo-hoo! Class dismissed.
1: Hi, this is andrew from the future i'm just popping in here at the end to add a few things to our credits that i didn't record at the time because i well i was still quite new at making this podcast right so first off our wonderful theme was written by akihiro akane with words mostly by me you can find uh, links to his instagram and web page in the show notes um, i also edit the show uh so any problems on that front you can blame me uh, Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is a production of the Yokohama Theater Group, also known as YTG. We are a nonprofit th- group that creates devised theater and provides theater training, and we're based in Japan. If you want to support this podcast by supporting us, and in these times of COVID 19, that would be super appreciated, please head over to ytg.jp and click support to make a one time donation. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is at waywardreaders.com and has various subscribe options. So the airing of these episodes is actually pretty delayed from when we recorded them. So this episode was probably recorded back in June. Um, and in real time, in where I'm, when I'm recording this, which is the 31st of July... Uh, we are actually almost done with Wuthering Heights our next recording will be the last chapter so the point is if you think that you would make a good wayward reader and would like to be on the podcast for season 2 and be involved with choosing which book we, we read, please get in touch with us as soon as possible via either of the websites mentioned above which you can check in the show notes so you don't have to rewind and listen to it okay, as a great man once said Catch you on the flip-flop.
2: Okay, I feel like to make the pop quiz go a little bit easier, it might be helpful if everyone has the book in front of them.
3: Yeah. like That way I can
2: sort of... Okay, whoever finds it first gets the points, sort of.
1: Or we just have a timer and nobody gets the points if we don't get the right answer. Like, we Do that as well.
2: Eh, I guess so. We can do um, both. But- Honestly, like, just to cut down both on dead air, but also make it so that a few of you know the answer. Right.
3: 18? Alright, all
2: right. That is correct. jury.
1: five yes. points. Can we, sorry, can we just do that interchange? Because I think there was some crosstalk there.
2: Okay, I'll do it again. Yeah, and then just Judy, jump
1: in. What? We're doing it again, so just jump in, Judy.
3: So I just got 18? (laughs) Okay.
2: First question. How many years? 18 years. Fuck right (laughs) off, Daniel. (laughs) We're doing this. This is
0: our clean take. (laughs) Okay,
2: Okay. sorry.
0: (laughs) Okay.
5: Oh, I was just gonna say there's a slight problem in scheduling because um next on Saturday I'm Mm -hmm. gonna be running 24 hours, (laughs) and so it'll be (laughs) (laughs) our recording time will be literally like very far into my. It'll be actually 12 hours into my run.
1: Wait, so you're not gonna you You
2: are you are running on your human legs yeah. for 24 straight hours? Yeah.
1: I mean, and like, just you superhuman, you, Charlotte. This
2: is this is not some sort of weird suicide by exhaustion thing. This is a plan <laughs> that you made with your brain that is capable of getting a PhD. <laughs> and you're spending your time on this earth running for 24 continuous hours? On
5: a loop. <laughs> it's a 7.5k loop that I'm just going to be doing circles
4: what what if you have to go to the bathroom? Though? Yeah, there's a toilet. But but do you do you have to like run while you, like?
1: In place <laughs> or? It's a long so trough. With... It's a long trough. You kind of just straddle so the it so trail.
5: <laughs> Why? Um, I I want to see how far I can push myself.
4: So you're going to be really out of breath when I you mean, do the I'm, podcast. I'm,
2: I'm very impressed. I'm just I'm... flabbergasted that that's a thing someone would want to do. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think I'm going to be very coherent.
1: You're not going to wear like a lavalier mic and like, <laughs> do the podcast as you want?
2: <laughs> okay, so, okay. Heathcliff. <sighs> this
1: audio podcast is a production of the Okama Theatre Group. Copyright 2020 All Rights Reserve.